Welcome to another episode of Desert Rain Community Radio. Today I sit down with David Morrison to discuss John Wimber, who was an American pastor, Christian author, musician, and one of the founding leaders of the first uh, Vineyard Church, which is the connection to Desert Rain community, and also just being uh, having an impact on David Morrison's theology and type of worship. Before we get into the episode, I would like to thank Diego for his great uh, editing ability over at Recording Moving Studios. I would like to thank Eric Bozeman at Star City Studio Productions and uh, Monk Drums, Jacob Nedia, Donnie Kanoy, and Greg Steele. You can find out more about Desert Rain Community at theruined.com. You can also find Desert Rain on Facebook. So um, thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode and let's get into it. Uh, welcome, Desert Hola. Rain Community Radio. How are you doing today, Mr. David Morrison? Not bad at all. It's a good day. We both got our orange shirts on. Yeah. Getting ready to uh, to represent uh, whatever orange represents. I don't even know. Yeah, I don't know. Mine's Nautica. <laughs> Mine's a... Uh, Yours is the, It's a shirt you gave me for my birthday. It's the Mud Dogs. Mud Dogs. Go baby. Mud Dogs. Go Mud Dogs. <laughs> Um, I didn't get much sleep last night. I'm feeling a little bit loopy, so we'll see see where this goes. But uh, this afternoon, we're coming to uh, this is to continue the series or the the uh, inspirations, the people that have played a role in in your theology, in the prayer life of Desert Rain uh, as a community. To continue on that series, we're going to talk about Mr. John Wimber. A name from the past, for sure. A blast from the past for you. How did you, uh, we'll get deep diving into it, but how did you first uh, hear about or come across this gentleman known as John Wimber? Yeah, it was kind of strange. Uh, I found a cassette on the street. Mm. And it was a sermon or a teaching that he was doing, probably part five of part 10 or something. Wait, was this like in a, a Kmart parking lot or what? <laughs> Somewhere in Northeast. I, I don't remember. Uh, I don't know what I was doing there. I, uh, it might have been in front of my house. I don't know. And it, what, on your journey, where, like what, what part of your life was this? Were you still oh, in the I, Catholic school or had you already... Uh, I was kind of in between, you know, yeah. like 17, 18 years old. And yeah. What was this cassette about? I don't know. I think it was part okay. of a prayer series called Intimate Communication with God or something like that. And what drew you so. into it? Or what? Hold on. Let's <laughs> let's back up. Why would you even like you saw it? Why would you even pop it into your tape player? <laughs> I don't know. I just Had you heard of him? No. <laughs> It was the '80s, man. We just we we pop strange cassettes into our Walkman. <laughs> Very walk risky. person now. You call yeah, it walk, walk person. person. Yeah. With no walk and so, uh, yeah. So and it blew my mind. Yeah, I'd never heard anybody teach about the things of God the way that he did. Mm. And surely, shortly after that, uh, met up with uh, a guy at the high school, Steve Alvarez. He was a 
like a campus preacher. Yeah, you've, we've talked guy. about him yeah. in a couple of the other and episodes. Then, uh, church at the time uh, was called Jesus Chapel Northeast, mm. but it, within a few years, adopted into the Vineyard Movement. Okay, so, which which John Wimber had a huge influence right, on. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, he's and the we'll, founder. Yeah, we'll get sort of the founder. Yeah, we'll get more into that. But let's let's um, you know just to sort of put it out there. I, this is a gentleman I I knew very little about until the last uh, week or two um, talking to you and, and doing some research for this podcast. So maybe you could tell a little bit about his background. Um, there's a great. Uh, YouTube video I watch where he tells his whole story, but maybe you could lay the foundation for people that aren't familiar with who John Wimber is. Yeah. I mean, he described himself as uh, a fat saxophone player trying to get his way to heaven on his way to heaven. And, uh, and so his, his background was, was, uh, very California. You know, I think he grew up in the shadow of pagan Disneyland as he called it. Yeah, I think he was born in the Midwest, but grew up in yeah in Disney or not in Disneyland, <laughs> but in Anaheim, California, <laughs> right. like in an Orange Grove or something like that. Uh-huh. And, um, and he was a, a musician, so he was you know a night person, mm-hmm. was one of the day people. And I guess he was in his early twenties and was separate, had been separated from his family, his wife. Uh, he was doing gigs in in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. Him, him and Tony Clifton. What was the name yeah. of the band he was playing for? I, I don't know if it was the band at the time, but it was the Righteous Brothers. Yeah, he yeah, was the yeah. horn player for them. Right. I, yeah, I don't remember if it was that's who he was playing with in Vegas, but that was one of the, yeah. the bands he mentioned. And then he had an encounter, you know, he hit rock bottom and got off his gig and drove into the desert and just wondered what had happened to his life. How did it come to this? And then just this despair with no religious background whatsoever asked if you're up there, help me. And he felt like he was answered and, uh, had a, uh, Christ conversion. Yeah. It was very interesting hearing about, cause he was sort of the stereotypical musician with the yeah. booze guzzling and yeah, cigarette smoking whole, yeah. and, and nightlife. And doesn't, yeah, it's hard to support a family. I can only imagine. <laughs> I wonder how it's working out for those hardcore punk rockers. Right. Now that they're living in suburbia. Now that they're adults. <laughs> those hardcore old. rappers. <laughs> you know, Ice, Ice Cube is out there uh, reading. Making movies. The, the physical paper in bed with a pipe. and <laughs> Ice, Ice T as well. Yeah. He's playing a cop on TV the now. Basset Hound brings their slippers. and. <laughs> so... Um, as he has this Christ conversion, from what I understood, he he got involved with the Quaker denomination, right. correct? Yeah, Quaker Church in Yorba Linda, California. Um, same one that Richard Milhouse Nixon really? went to. Yeah, Inter- That's interesting. And that worked out well, right? <laughs> <laughs> Quakers don't claim him too much. Yeah, you don't. You don't uh, they don't it, scrub it, it either, though. It, so. well, I was going to say, it is on his Wikipedia page. Yeah. Uh, but beyond that, it's, it's yeah. Quakers it's hard are very honest, so they'll say, "Yeah, he was one of us." Yeah, he hung out with us. <laughs> and um, it seemed like the inspiration he he got inspired very quickly through this 
conversion process. Yeah, there, he you know went to a a small Bible study. I forgot the man's name, but he had a huge influence on Wimber and um and, and yeah, and just got what what Christians would call disciple to use biblical language. Mm-hmm. Um, and he got trained, if you will. Yeah, and he fell into to church growth. Yeah, pretty he, quickly. Well, he was a gifted evangelist, mm-hmm. so he was very, uh, you know, just a people person, charismatic, being a musician, being in showbiz, probably. Uh, and and it was a radical turn in his life, and so he naturally told people about it. Well, and he seemed like a very authentic person, yeah, in yeah, general, exactly from some of the things I read and, and watched. Charismatic and authentic, which is a which is a tough thing, kind to of find. a rare combination, I guess. Um, yeah, so. And, and so what was the name of the university he was, was with? Yeah. So, so he kind of burned out. He got to, you know, what happens in a church often happened to him. You, 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 uh, get so involved that it burns you out and you see the, the underbelly of it, the, under the, the institutionalization the of everything. Of it. Yeah. And it just, it just rips your soul out. And so I think he had reached a point like that where he was completely burned out. And uh, I think he was on staff at that church at that he point. He was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is one thing he and said. And so he took a, a rare job at the time, rare for the time. It was a new kind of field uh, uh, called church growth theory. That's right. And so, and that was through Fuller. Fuller, yep. The Fuller Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, evangelical Southern California university seminary. And so did that for a long time and or I think maybe five years or something like that and visited uh, hundreds and hundreds of I was churches. Say, it sounded like he traveled all over yeah, the United to try States. To, to try to work with church leaders, you know, churches, particularly Protestant churches by the 60s and even before started to decline Okay. In in their influence and numbers and their vitality, uh, they've been stuck in institutionalism and traditions that no longer really serve them, and so they were just dying. They've been dying for right. a long, it's been, long been, time. Yeah, the last what four or five decades, maybe. Right, just a decline. slow, slow death, and uh, and so yeah, so they would hire him to revitalize their ideas, and you know. Unfortunately, I think they were using corporate America models, you know. Uh, so there's and that, it's problematic. Yeah, and that was one of the things he touched on in his in the talk I watched was that he was very proud in what the Fuller Institute was able to do as far as helping these churches. Right. But he also talked about um, it became very mechanical. Like he was very yeah. good at it, that he would know weeks in advance exactly what it was going to look like. And I don't think he used the word corporate, but the way he he kind of alluded to yeah. that sort of you know growth mentality of of the United States exactly, um, and, that, and that's what is the church growth movement, if you will, has mm-hmm. become. It's just taking American business practices and applying it to congregations, mm. and a lot of people love it, and a lot of people don't. Uh, it worked for me until it clearly did not work, and uh, you know and. Let me, let me just say it like this. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Eugene Peterson, a highly respected author and pastor, uh, called the church, the mega church, the, the uh, church growth model 
church. He called it an anti-Christ church. Oh, so wow. I'll just leave it at that. And that was Eugene Peterson, not me. I'm just quoting You're him. quoting yes. him, right? So let me just leave to it To specify like that. that. Yeah. Well, but and and to sort of push back on that a little bit, a lot of people have come through the door of those types of churches and have found an authentic exactly. Regardless of what the the corporate growth model might be, there are individuals that have walked through the doors of right. those churches and have had an authentic Christ experience. Absolutely. And community and Right. That are that yeah. are passing that today. Passing and, it along today. And in America you can't argue with external success. So, you know, I'm not even gonna try. Well, I, I think that's you can. <laughs> that's I think that's a different perspective because I think there's <laughs> there's a difference between having an authentic Christian experience and getting two thousand people through your door. Yeah. It, it it could be one of the same, but I, I think not necessarily. Yeah. The end result of having not all two thousand of those people are having authentic Christian experiences. Yeah, and who's to say, right? Yeah. You know? But but at the beginning, you know, in the in the seventies, that was pretty cutting edge, and well, it was and, brand new, right? Yeah, and it was kind of taking common sense and spirituality, and and applying them to dying congregations. I think that's a very valid thing, you know. Uh, I think updating your music is a valid argument, mm-hmm. you know, and it's very controversial, though. You know, you don't mess with people's music. <laughs> well, I, I have a funny story. My, well, I'll, yeah, I'll go ahead and share. My grandfather, who who was very much grew up on, I don't know how he got into listening to like um, real classical music you know what i mean like real singing music you know what i mean like uh he didn't grow up listening to this person but like Pavarotti. oh okay opera opera type music and i remember we were me i was with him and my grandmother at church one sunday and he was at this point into all his alzheimer's he had alzheimer's and he was pretty into it And, and what happens is the beginning of Alzheimer's, your frontal lobe is the first thing to go, which oh. is our which is our filter, right? Oh, okay. And he and he also is hard of hearing, so they're singing this contemporary music, and it wasn't even that contemporary. <laughs> like it was a choir with the piano a and Jesus an organ. Nineteen seventies music being <laughs> right. sung in the late nineties. <laughs> well, no, well, this was the two, probably like two thousand ten or twelve uh, okay. at this point. So yeah, nineties, you know, seventies music being sent sung in 2012 which was radical for a Methodist right right? exactly exactly (laughs) and so he leans over to me when they're done singing and it's you know it's that it's that that lull (laughs) lull, yeah and it's nice and quiet and and you could hear a pin drop and he's (laughs) and he leans over and said he thinks he's whispering because but because he's hard of hearing he's like this music is terrible (laughs) and it is (laughs) and the lady like in front of us like looked around and what what am i going to do explain to her alzheimer's and hard of hearing i just shrug at her and she like has this like (laughs) defeated look in her face and it's just like well he's being honest so uh yeah i don't even know why we went down that that (laughs) rabbit trail but um to go back to sort of bring it back to John Wimber, yeah, to his timeline, right? Well, even so, I think we we've covered that on a certain level pretty well. But what about him inspired you? Like, why was this guy so profound to you early on? And, and it seems like even today, um, yeah, when you talk about, about him, it, yeah, exactly. 
Uh, definitely, definitely his authenticity. You know, he coined the phrase to be, at least, at least we in the vineyard, we, we credit him with mm-hmm, this. Right. He may not have, but uh, that he was uh, naturally supernatural and that you can engage in the presence of God and still be a normal human being, mm-hmm. earthly human being, an incarnational person, to use a theological term. Um, he was very transparent in his, um, in being vulnerable, okay. his weaknesses, his failures, uh, had a, a great sense of humor and brought that to, to the whole thing. And so that was, that was very, imp- uh, impressionable for me being, you know, 17, 18 years old. I thought that's the kind of Christian I want to be. Mm. And if, if I'm going to go into ministry, that's the kind of ministry I want to do uh, things that matter. Um, took seriously the the ministry of Jesus, as far as um, he basically preached and he taught and he healed, and he took those three things very seriously. That they can be done today, you know, in mm-hmm. a way that that is not theater, it's not performance, it's not uh, phony, uh, it's it's authentic. And the other thing that attracted me is that when they would pray for the sick. They were very honest about when it uh, the the prayer was not answered. Mm. And, yeah, and, he, he and, covered that in the talk. Yeah, that in, was very important. Pretty detail. To me. Yeah, and even to this day in the vineyard, they're very clear about that. If if a prayer is not answered and a miracle does not occur, which often is the case, right? Which is probably more often the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't dare try to answer why. Mm. Whereas other Pentecostal circles, they'll say you sinned or you didn't have enough faith. Um, something like that. There's some sort of sin in America, you know. Like self, that kind of so, thing. so you would put it on the person praying. Yeah, which is incredibly wounding. Yeah, that, that happens quite often. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm saying, yeah, I don't, I, I'm not familiar with that, but yeah, it, I could imagine awful. that would be a really yeah. uh, toxic. And not just thing Pentecostal Christians in the New Age movement as well. You didn't, yeah. you didn't cleanse your mind. You didn't. You had have the thoughts. correct thoughts. Right. Yeah, so it's the same. Kind of thing. So now here's someone's dying of cancer, and you and you put an extra burden of emotional uh, woundedness on them by telling them it's their fault. You just shamed the sick, uh, and they shame, and then it never ends. Then they start shaming the poor as well. Well, they're poor because they choose to be they poor. Thought, they thought poor uh, thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Then, I mean, know. that's the new age outlook. That's yeah, and that's that's unfortunately. The uh, the political the politicized evangelical mm. attitude towards immigrants and towards the poor towards the sick and it's, it's sinful you know it's what we would call uh, in great need of repentance you know, so yeah especially because usually those are the people on the fringes yeah that, yeah that Christ talked about exactly being one with or being connected they're the with. people of the beatitudes they're the yeah. ones who are inheriting the earth and the kingdom of heaven and so forth. And you're and you're you know wounding them. So one of the things I would uh, like to sort of unpack with you is that that idea of being. Uh, I'm gonna mess it up. Naturally supernatural is that is that what the quote was? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so so what what has that looked like? Whether it's your ministry or your prayer life or encounters you've had with people in your community, sort of what has that looked like over the last. 30 or 40 years. Yeah. So, you know, we, we don't, 
make a theater of our meetings, mm-hmm. you know, try to be as plain as possible, be as down to earth as possible, which is basically being yourself. Right. Um, music uh, is actually worship. It's not a performance. And so, so unpack that a little bit. That's a huge one. Yeah. Let's, let's go down okay. that. Like what, what, cause when I think, so if I think music in any um, context, the first thing that comes to mind is performance. Right. And that's what, what it's become or is or was before that. I, I'm having a hard time communicating. Let, let me give the historical context. So, okay. That would be awesome. So, so an average Protestant church in America, you know, you would sing a couple of hymns. and But you're really there for the sermon. And I would guess that's probably the, the, the case now in most churches, Protestant churches in, th- in America. I think, right. You're really there for the sermon. That's the big dog and pony show. Yeah. So the music just kind of warms you up for it. Right. Um, that wasn't the case in Wimber's teaching, and it's not the teaching of, of Vineyard as a movement. The, and that's re- that's what really grabbed me at 17, 18 years old. It's a teaching of that when a, when a group of people get together or an individual mm-hmm. alone uh, sings worship uh with a genuine heart uh, to God, uh, there's a transformation that takes place, a Mm. a true soul transformation. And you are literally participating in the kingdom of God and the liturgy of heaven, uh, the communion of the saints, as the Catholic Church would call it. Right. Uh, you're, You're participating with them. You're praying at that point with heaven, and you're uh, singing with heaven. You know, as you see in the book of Revelation, which is really what that book is about. It's not about the end times. It's about the liturgy in heaven being one with the liturgy on earth. Mm. The Lamb of God being the center. This is why the Catholic Church uses the Eucharist as the center. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so that's, that's what I was taught, you know, that you were... You are you are participating in what we'd call the throne room. That's a Jewish, mm-hmm. uh, of uh, Jewish mysticism. You know, throne room theology, if you will, throne room mysticism that you see in Ezekiel and Daniel and some of the other prophets. Uh, well, we, we took that. At least I did at eighteen, nineteen of those early years. Took it very literally that when we sing together that way, we are literally participating and we're. In the throne room, if you will, we're, we're reminding ourselves that we're really there mm-hmm. at that moment. So I think without that theology, it becomes just a performance. And so, so what happened is without that theology, then the music becomes a performance, right? And I think that's exactly what happened mainstream because Vineyard was one of the first uh, Calvary Chapel, some of these uh, these Jesus People movement groups from mm-hmm. the seventies early 80s, uh, Hope Chapel, right, uh, came up with their own music and began to write their own songs that were relevant culturally to that generation. Uh, so someone like me, I, I grew up in a, in a Catholic church that didn't even right. sing. Right. We didn't even, you know, and we were glad we when had someone... We had like the, what was it called? The, the hymn that everyone would sort of mumble as right, the priest yeah. would we walk in. Right, yeah, we were just in. kind of drone off our <laughs> right. holy, holy, holy... We wouldn't sing. And so so my outlet to and, and I think everyone needs music. Everybody needs to sing. I think psychologically we need to unload 
our anxieties and our elations. And I think singing is a dancing and, and motion. Is an outlet it's, for It's that. very, very powerful. And yeah, because there definitely wasn't any dancing in the in the Catholic no, Church. No, no. <laughs> and if you've seen liturgical dancing, you thank God <laughs> that it's not. <laughs> I'm just kidding uh, to all you Anglicans out there. Uh, but you know, and so for me, music was the pop music of the time, the '70s and '80s, mm-hmm. uh, and and before, and mm-hmm. so. So this music emulated that. I see. And it spoke my language and gave me a, you know, an outlet. And your language in the in the sense of like the Christian church. Right, yeah, and, and, and to be expressed musically. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a that was just a a game changer spiritually for me to be able to have that that kind of uh, understanding and experience. So. And and so you think since then it's become more of a performance and less of worship or is it just sort of a church by church yeah basis? it was so here we are in the 80s right so you gotta it's hard to get people to, to imagine a pre-internet mm-hmm. world but it was a pre-internet world and so we would wait for the next cassette tape right of the newest come out. couple of songs that these kids in Southern California were making at the warehouse church that Wimber had, and you know, and the, or CDs, you know, later in the mm-hmm. in the nineties, mm-hmm. and then I guess it was probably the late nineties. I was uh, watching late night TV, uh, you know the you know cable TV you know, late late at night, you know <laughs> right. the uh, Adult I'm pr- Swim. I'm That's familiar. <laughs> I, lo- I was a big fan of, a, and still I am of Adult Swim, and uh, so I was wa- watching that, but. And then, you know, and late at night, I don't know if it happens now, but back then, it, these long infomercials would come Right, around. I remember those. And so this is probably 99, maybe Waking 2000. Uh, there, came, uh, there was an infomercial of all the greatest worship songs that have been put out. You can own the whole collection. The whole yeah. 10 CD set or whatever. Yeah, it was a massive CD set, uh, which unfortunately I already owned. And... Uh, <laughs> Because I was a card-carrying Peace, guy. Piecemeal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you'd, you'd collected on piecemeal. But that late night, watching that, I realized this is this is no longer a creative movement now. It's mm. been capitalized upon. It's been exploited. It's great that it's so widespread that so many churches are obviously adopting it. But it also means, I, I just knew that instinctively, that it also means it's it the be, cutting edge is over. It had become corporatized. Yeah, and it's mainstream now. And so now you take it for granted. You go to any kind of church and they're mm-hmm. singing those kinds of songs. And for someone that's been in it for so long, like myself, it becomes uh, empty and trite. Mm. And and if you're seeking for something deeper, it's, it's a difficult, it can be a difficult road for you. Because you were introduced to it when it was cutting edge. Right. And heartfelt. Yeah. And there was it, authenticity behind it. Yeah. And, and, and I think that theology, the loss of throne oh, room mysticism, the loss of that. Those two really went hand in hand. Yeah. And, and they don't teach that, you mm-hmm. know, it's too mystical. Yeah, I've never heard of it. And so that was, that was, that was a... Uh, what would you call it? A, a cornerstone teaching for me mm-hmm. in, in in my late teens, early twenties. So, what does that look like for you today? Sort of in your own personal journey, as far as music and that mis- mysticism. Well, for me, uh, 
the silent prayer together, sharing uh, silence together, again, fits in with that liturgy of heaven that you see in the book of Revelation. There's a point in the liturgy uh, where there's a half hour silence in heaven. Mm. And, and so we're entering into that when we do that, to, that, to the mystery of that silence. Uh, so it's still a part of the communion of the saints. Mm-hmm. Um, for me personally, it becomes, the, the first commandment becomes more important to me, which is don't take the Lord's name in vain. And so a lot of these songs, they say the name Jesus constantly, and it becomes, it cheapens the sacred name, mm. if you will. And so I, I, I feel like I've adopted more of the uh, tradition of Judaism, which is you don't you don't throw that name around. Right, it's a sacred name, and and you and you sit with it in silence. Um, and so I, I I feel like I'm more in that side of the camp. Mm-hmm. And then and then people would counter me and say, well, you should you shouldn't be ashamed of Jesus, and you shouldn't. Uh, which is true. You should preach the name of Jesus, and you're just you know blah 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 blah. And you know, and I would say if you can't smell, you know, if you have a normal olfactory, you know, a working mm-hmm. olfactory uh, system uh, and you can't smell a room full of roses, then what's the point of describing them and naming them? Mm. And so if the presence of God is not soaking my life, I have no business saying anything mm-hmm. to anyone. I have no authority to really do that. And I know a lot of people disagree with that, but that's my personal conviction. Yeah. There, there's a, there's a similar idea within the recovery world um, in the sense that instead of going around telling everyone you're sober or you're clean, right, announcing they, it, yeah. they should just be able to see you interact with the world. Yeah. And as they a should sober come person. Right. And they should come ask you, Hey, like why why do you act in this way or why do you do exactly. these things? And, and then you can say, well, I used to be a scumbag and now yeah. I've learned a diff- different principles in my life and I try to embody them. And I learned those in getting sober or getting yeah. clean or whatever else. So, And again, it comes down to authenticity, right? A hundred percent. Just be who you are. Yeah. If, you, if I'm a follower of Christ, it will show and I won't have to manufacture that or fabricate anything. And so that's kind of how I feel. And um, well, it's I think it's one of those things too that if you spend a lot of people out there might spend a bunch of time to um, announce, I guess, the, in the conversation we're having, or project some kind of signs or signals that they're a follower of Christ. But if they spent that same amount of time trying to embody the Gospels. Yeah, inner transformation. There would be no need for those announcements or exactly. projections. People would just see it and be, yeah. They would come to that person and be like, "What? You seem different. What's? Yeah. What are you doing?" And and I've been around long enough, you know, to know that as a general rule, those that talk about Jesus the most tend to be the ones who know him the least. And that, I think that's true in all avenues of life. Mm. The people that go around talking about how rich they are, yeah, now I'm probably not that rich. Yeah, exactly. You know how how people that go around saying, "Oh, I'm the smartest guy in the room." It's like, 
Well, if you're the smartest guy in the room, you don't have to say it. <laughs> yeah, everyone in the room already <laughs> we, yeah. know, already knows exactly. <laughs> and so I, that's kind of where I feel, right? You know about it. I'm I'm definitely in the school of Saint Francis, who said, you know, preach the gospel all the time, uh, when necessary, use words. And so, uh, you know, and that's I think it's just a preference. And somebody wants to bang me over the head with the Great Commission, okay. Well, and there's also different seasons of life, right? Yes, exactly. So there, you know, there's seasons where that is. Someone might be called in that way to interact with that, you right? Know, um, which is perfectly fine, and, and you're in the season that you're in today, exactly. With your outlook on it. So, sort of circling back to to John Wimber, um, what were some of the when when you did have this church prior prior to sort of the where we're at today as far as Desert Rain Community, once again you are listening to Desert Rain Community Radio. Heyo. <laughs> uh, but when you know when you were when you were getting in front of a congregation week in and week out, you know what were some of the things that you drew upon? Like what are some examples of things you drew upon? that you learned or were inspired by Mr. Wimber? Well, definitely the the model of church definitely mm-hmm. followed that. There was kind of a an unspoken vineyard model, and we definitely followed that, which was, you know, a, a time of uh, worship and singing, usually with a worship team that would lead it. Mm. Um, we later incorporated intercessory prayer with that, which was part of the... Uh, like during the worship? Right, yeah. So our intercessions and our thanksgivings and even Bible readings would be incorporated with uh, between songs, if you will, or on top okay. of songs being played instrumentally. So we, so that's kind of the way it looked. And then, yeah. And that was at your church specifically or right. that was the vineyard model? Uh, that was our church sp- specifically. Some right. vineyards embrace that. Of uh, course. The... What later became the uh, IHOP or the International House of Prayer was uh, was pushing that that model. Mike Bickle. Oh, this, so that is a real. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah. I think he called it Harp and Bowl at the time, and mm-hmm. I went to a, a couple of conferences there, and it worked until it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and, and the, the emphasis on end times was just off putting to me as well. That's what they were doing at that. Yeah, at that and now church. and nowadays especially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and you know and. Uh, anointing certain presidential candidates as chosen by God. And right. I, I just don't buy into that political uh, superstition. I be- yeah, I believe yeah. the church should be political. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. is Reverend Martin Luther extreme, King Jr. Right, extremely political. And it was the uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church. that. So, so I'm not saying we shouldn't be political. I'm just saying uh shouldn't be so sure that... Uh, your guy is chosen from God. Right. And I think that I think there's something to be said because it seemed like Martin Luther King, his foundation was in God and Christ. Right. And he engaged politically. Where some it seems like sometimes today it's like your foundation is the political part of it. Right. And then you use the Bible or the God to sort of justify. Yeah. And it's a tricky, you know, it's a tricky walk. Yeah, it's a wire, for wire sure. walk for sure. For me, it's, it's you know, I, I think when you are an advocate or a someone that is uh, standing up for the poor and with the poor, 
Uh, I think you've done a political and a gospel action there, you know. And so mm -hmm. anyway, um, I forgot what we were. Yeah, well, um, I, I do want to circle back uh, to the tape that you had found. Or you, you oh, said, the sermon, the, the service, I think you were saying. We, yeah, we were talking about that. So we do the music, that. yeah, mm -hmm. and then a 30-minute a sermon, which was usually a life application, mm -hmm. just like Wimber would, would give. Um, and then a chance to pray over people, for people to receive prayer. So we'd have prayer teams designated uh, to lay hands on people who mm -hmm. wanted it. And we kind of modified it a bit and just had everyone hold hands mm. and kind of democratized it a little further, but... Which I'm sure for people could be really moving. Yeah. Connecting in that way. I think so. I mean, yeah. a lot of people thought it was weird. Why would a church hold hands? But, you know, I don't know. There's weirder things out there going on in churches. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But one of, one of the things I wanted to get back to um, that seemed really interesting uh, was this intimate communication with God. Yeah. What a great phrase. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a really beautiful phrase. So maybe you could unpack that sort of your understanding of it and, and John Wimber's um, communication or, or teaching of it and the impact it had? Yeah, for me, being 17, 18 years old, and just the idea that prayer could be called intimate communication with God was, was an amazing breakthrough. Because before, it was an obligation of recited prayers. That that was my background. In the Catholic Church. Right, right. yeah. And so you're somehow gaining the grace or you're defeating communism by saying the With rosary. The Our Father. <laughs> yeah. And uh, um, if, if not enough rosaries are said, then the communists we'll are going to take over. Because you know? <laughs> speaking, speaking the, the capitalists aren't killing anybody. Uh, and so anyway. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so it became more of an uh, obligatory thing. Uh, the was, reciting of prayers. Right, right. yeah. Uh, there was some consolation in it, you know, but for the most part, it was a, a spiritual discipline uh, to gain grace, if you will. And and so this which, idea... Which that, is an oxymoron. Right, yeah. You, know, you can't gain grace. And so this idea that you could sit down, so to speak, with Jesus of Nazareth and have a conversation... Um, is, is, is an amazing thing. Or in the context of the, the throne room teaching, uh, to Christianize it a bit would be to sit at, at the, in the throne room of God and overhear the whisperings between the Trinity, mm. the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Um, that, that, that was very attractive to me and very enthralling and, and enchanting. And so, so and, and that was definitely part of his Quaker background was listening prayer. Mm -hmm. You know, and so you're not exercising your ego and your willfulness to get God to do something that you want God to do, but rather you're sitting still and listening to the whispering of the Spirit to right. transform and, you and and the world, you know. And that's what I was going to say is that when you spoke earlier about your prayer life today of sitting in silence. And, and now, yeah, today, right, yeah. yeah. And your current, your current prayer life. And yeah. I know for me as well, by doing that, it opens up the opportunity for me to hear that whisper. Right. Because otherwise I can miss it. You know? Right. And he would, and Wimber would teach, you know, he would say, you, you guys, uh, you know, it was the 80s. So he would say, guys, 
Um, you have to forgive them. They didn't know what they were doing then. Uh, they were doing the best they could. But he'd say, you, you pray, you criticize the Catholics for praying uh, recited prayers when you sound like talking dolls yourselves. Mm-hmm. Lord God, we just pray, la, 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 in Jesus' name. And, and so he would mock that. And, and so hearing that at 18 and I'm just starting off was— Because you had grown up Catholic. Right, yeah. yeah. And so here he was defending Catholic prayer while uh, upending the same kind of ridiculous, you know, recitation, repetitive mm-hmm. prayers. And well, so, but it, I still didn't like silent prayer then. That was not something my wife had to teach me. So we started praying together because we wanted to be a good Christian couple when we were dating. Right. And she automatically practiced silent prayer. Mm-hmm. So I th- automatically thought something was wrong with her. Uh, she's repressed. She's got a demon. Something's wrong with her. And I realized she was right all along. So, Well, and probably her silence was just a mirror that made you uncomfortable. Oh, yeah, absolutely. With silence in general. Absolutely. Yeah. Until, you know, years later of being married and mm-hmm. realized, wow, she was right. Well, and it's funny because another thing besides hearing that whisper, uh, one of the things that that I get out of silent prayer and just being in silence today, uh, I first heard it from a good friend of ours, uh, Randall Parton, mm-hmm. would talk about that nudge from God or that right. nudge from from the Holy Spirit. And, and when I sit in silence, I'm a lot more open to that, to noticing yeah. that nudge. The John Wesley... Uh Heart strangely warmed. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and instead, instead of imposing, like we talked, I don't remember what the context was a few minutes ago, but we talked about like me trying to impose my will on right, God yeah. through my prayer. Exactly. Which is, it It might work once once in a blue moon, but right. it, it's not sustainable or, or something that's particularly useful for me today. Exactly. Um. And this is something we actually, you and I were talking about before we turned on the mics, but this idea, this is something that John Wimber talked about was this idea of church planning and how effective that is for uh, uh, evangelism. And you spoke about that a little bit with you and I were just speaking off mic, but I was wondering if you you could delve down that a little bit more of, of, you know, why, because in my mind, when I hear that idea of church planning, that's just the church growth model. Yeah, it can be for sure. Right. But I I think you had a different perspective that would be useful. Yeah. I I think the context was when he, when he joined the Quaker church after his conversion, he uh, was bringing in hundreds of young people uh, fellow converts into this church mm-hmm. and it kind of quote unquote destroyed the ethos and culture that the church had already had, which was aging and, and traditional. And I think and, was, and felt comfortable to the people that were going to church there for years and years, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Keep in mind when he walked in, it was the early sixties when he walked in their church, he, he uh, looked around. The first thing he looked for were ashtrays and then he, he didn't find any because he was he was looking for one because he had one yeah, left. Yeah, because he lived in casinos, you know, and and uh, so he crushed it out on the floor on their red carpet, probably, and uh, and so he's bringing in all these kinds of people just like him, 
and and so this poor woman, you know, was crying and kind of yelled at him across the the. And this was months later. Just to this isn't probably the same. Years, yeah, maybe. Yeah, this isn't years. the same. Him putting the cigarette out on the no, floor. no. This is yeah after he had become, yeah. um, you know, a leader in this church. And, mm-hmm. and she said, "You ruined our church, right? Something like that. You destroyed mm-hmm. our church." And and he and he said, "I know, but where else are these people going to go? You know." And um, and so and it was the same thing with Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel. You know, okay. so churches wouldn't let hippies in. They would destroy the ethos of the of the mm. church, you know. And so Chuck Smith had, you know, who had several uh, failures at pastoring these churches because they were just too old and too stuck in the traditions. So he started one where he just opened up the the church to these hippies and mm-hmm. um, and you know and formed Calvary Chapel, which became a, a major movement as well uh, throughout the world and and Hope Chapel and and. California and Hawaii, the same thing. Mm. Um, and so you were asking, yeah, what what should he have done? Well, just just yeah. yeah, and you brought up church planning. Yeah, church planning is kind of the is is a good uh, solution to a charismatic leader that uh, is bringing in a, a new community, and it seems like you have two communities, maybe three, in one church, and you just can't seem to accommodate them. Um, uh, making the church smaller and to multiply them is seems to be a better a better way to go. And why do you feel that is? Because I, I think when you follow the American model of bigger is better, mega church. The next thing you know, you're bought, you're tied down to a mortgage mm. or a massive rent for your facilities. Uh, then you got to hire people for staff, and then the next thing you know, you're in the the business of church. And you're kind of beholden to a handful of absolutely, yeah, big givers, yeah. big donors. Yeah, they'll say they're not, but they are. You yeah. are, and uh, and so uh, by by growing smaller, then it, it's more democratic, if you will. If I should use a, a terrible word, I guess. No, I don't think a, that's a lot a, of a terrible word. Uh, uh, egalitarian. Mm. Well, let me say it like this: I heard somebody. I'm not a theologian. Uh, but I read people that read theologians, so you know. So I'm a you're, you're a I'm theologian a by proxy. Yeah, I'm a poor man's. Uh, you're theologian adjacent, I think. Yeah, is the, exactly. Is the, Far removed. But but there, are, some theologians have identified three different structures of church in the New Testament. One being the Peter model, uh, which is top down authoritarian. You have a top pope or an apostle. Who's who's the decision maker, and then and then that apostle has a smaller group, and it and it goes down in a pyramid. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have the Pauline or Paul structure, which is uh, it's based on charismatic giftings. Mm. So if you have the gifting of a pastor, uh, then you're a pastor. You function as that. If you have a prophetic kind of gifting, then you you function that way. So it's more of a charismatic model and that's but then there's a third one that's very really only the Quakers uh, historically have embraced this one which is the John's community or the Johannine to use a German uh, fancy word uh, (laughs) which is the spirit is in everyone the spirit Mm. is given equally and we discern what the spirit might be speaking to us as a small group 
and and we uh, and then we move accordingly. It's just how the Quakers have traditionally and historically functioned. Uh, I think people are terrified of that model. Well, and it's funny because I would say that's that's the model of the twelve step community. Oh yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, it is actually. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And, and I've never heard it in a theological context yeah. like that. But that's a, the way you described it is how yeah. 90 to 95 percent of uh, recovery, 12 step recovery groups function. Yeah. You know, there's some other weird outliers where they have like a hierarchy, but that's pretty few and far between. Yeah. And it would call for a very small group, mm-hmm. you know, and but it would be just as transformative to people's lives than, you know, a giant you know, a, a, a giant campus, you know, or multi-campuses and that kind of multiple campuses. And So do you, so. do you think that that, that structure hasn't become more popular in the United States because of this idea of rugged individualism and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or why, why do you think uh, yeah, it might not be strange. more popular? You'd think it would be because right. of individualism, but, uh, I think I think seems that most people, in my experience, you would think people like to think for themselves, mm. but I, my experience is they don't. Yeah. They want someone to tell them what to think, and 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 I think the state of popular Christianity in America, they definitely love their authoritarianism, as shown politically in the last several years. Well, I, I think, and this isn't necessarily on that, but I think. Another thing I've noticed, and it may be more of a Catholic thing, but you kind of want to outsource your spiritual work. Right, yeah. Instead of having to do it, yeah. do your own inner work, your own inner transformation. Instead of being in a community that uh, inspires or promotes that inner transformation, it's like, well, the priest is for that. Yeah. The pastor is for paid that. For. Right. Yeah, I think it's a terrifying thing for most people to realize that they're responsible for their spiritual life. Which it, it's a scary thing. It's yeah, it is a scary thing. To I think, be, I to think be maybe fair. to half the population, it's a scary thing that you're responsible for your own life. I think that's a <laughs> scary thing, you know. Uh, right, because then because then when you wake up and look in the mirror, the person looking back at you. It can be terrifying when you have that that yeah. responsibility. Yeah, and it's like Thomas Merton said, you know, when you're on your deathbed, you could be surrounded by all your friends and family, but only you are doing that work mm. of the dying process. It's you and you alone at that point. Uh, and th- that's a scary thing for people. It takes some practice to to try to to muster the strength to sail those waters. And I would say that you need a community to help you yeah, grow I think to be do. able to sail those waters. It's very helpful, yeah, to say, yeah, you are you just had a manic state there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Virgin Mary did not appear to you. Uh, and maybe she did, maybe, but even so, you still have to do the dishes today. Right. You still have to not be an a-hole to people around yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, if you're seeing the Virgin Mary and still cutting... Purposely cutting people off in traffic. Yeah. Something's not jiving. Right. For and some so, reason. Yeah. So you need a community to bring you back down to earth and uh, and keep you anchored to earth. Mm. And to realize, you know, what's, that was just, you know, 
okay, maybe you did have a divine revelation. So that should make you more relatable. Or maybe you just had a manic episode. And, Which, was, and that's all it was. It was just a manic episode and you're okay. And if you're honest about it, that's going to make you more relatable exactly, too. Because exactly. other people have had manic states yeah. in their life. Exactly. And, and maybe it's unknown to them what they were experiencing. Yeah, you just didn't sleep for three days. Yeah. And then you got around people praying and of course that happened. Well, it's it's funny sort of going back to that, that idea of um, keeping your feet firmly on the ground – uh, that's one of the things we venture into in the recovery world is we, you know, we say we keep our head in the, in the clouds, but our, our feet firmly planted yeah. on, on the earth. It's very, yeah, that's so, such a great, I, I, uh, Thomas Keating mm. often referred to a Native American story of, I think it was, it was the story of Jumping Mouse. And it was a mouse that wanted to uh, fly like the eagle, uh, and so I, th- I think it was like the owl or something. Some wise animal told him, right. when you can uh, anchor one foot on the ground and look at the, at the sky at the same time, uh, then you'll become an eagle. And, and so, you know, and then he's transformed at some point, you know. Mm. And so it's, yeah, such powerful to that. I mean, that's the incarnation. Yeah. It's Jesus. It's the divine being human, earthly. And um so, so powerful because, but most of us want to spend our spirituality trying to become not human, or to try to escape our humanity or and the, and the become, trauma that become so, heavenly or whatever right. the word we uh, reach nirvana. Yeah. In other in other. Well, what we're really doing is we're practices. bypassing the trauma of our lives. We, we don't want to make friends with that trauma or even recognize that trauma, and and so we we're bypassing or disassociating. Yeah. Which that. is dangerous because it that stuff's yeah. going to come up one way or the yeah, other. Yeah, it's going to. It's just a matter of time. So, well, yeah, I think I think on that note of of you know that vision of of the mouse with with one foot anchored, staring into the into the galaxies into the the heavenly um, world. Um, just want to thank you again oh, thank uh, you. on this episode of Desert Rain Community Radio for anyone listening. Um, there, It seems like there's quite a few of uh, John Wimber um, sermons or talks on YouTube that you can look into. It's uh, J-O-H-N-W-I-M-B-E-R. Uh, the couple I've listened to have, have just this week have really, really touched me and moved me. And so I, I appreciate you uh, coming on today, David Morrison, and, and oh, sharing thank you. Uh, what impact he's had on on your theology and, and um, the life here at Desert Rain Community. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. Yeah. Thank you again for tuning in. And uh, we'll, we'll have another one for you next week. Bye.